There was a man whose friend was always quoting Winston Churchill, and one time he said these immortal words. He said, and we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the streets. We shall fight. And his friend interrupted him and said, man, that sounds a lot like our last family vacation. Now, we know that families don't always behave the way that families should, and that's true of church families as well. Mark Twain one time said that he tried an experiment. He put a dog and a cat in a cage just to see if they could get along, and they did pretty well. So then he introduced a bird, a pig, and a goat into the cage, and after some adjustments, they all got along with each other, and then he did this. He put in a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic, and pretty soon there was not a living thing left in the cage. Today we're continuing our series called This Is Us as we explore God's goals from the church. And one of God's really, really important goals is unity. I was thinking the other day, if, if Jesus himself came on a Sunday morning to be our guest speaker, he's here through his spirit every Sunday, but if Jesus was actually going to speak, what topic would he choose? And I suspect that it might be the topic of unity because unity is something that Jesus was and is very passionate about. And let me say this, this topic of unity is very important in a church family, but it's also important in all of our families and in all of our friendships. And we'll see that as we look at these principles this morning. And as you read through this book of the Bible, it's actually a letter that Paul, a follower of Jesus, wrote in the first century to some Christians in Ephesus. One thing that really is striking is how many times he talks about unity in the church. 18 times he talks about unity in the church. Now you might think, hey Paul, you're just repeating yourself, but that's exactly what he intended to do. Because for Paul, as well as for Jesus, unity isn't just an important thing, unity is an essential thing. I mean, think about what Jesus prayed for before he went to the cross and laid down his life. And this is recorded in John chapter 17. Jesus knows that when he goes back home to heaven, his followers are gonna have to take his mission and complete it. And so he's actually praying for the church. And what does he pray for? Well, he doesn't pray for administrative skill for his disciples. He doesn't pray for creative marketing strategies or, or big buildings. He prays for unity. In fact, look at these verses. This is from John 17. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. Now, that's a reference to the original 12 disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, who's that? That's us. Because for 2,000 years, this message of the gospel has been handed down from one generation to the next. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus was actually praying for us, the people who would believe through that original message from his disciples. And what does he pray? Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, and here's a reason, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, as we talk about unity, it's important to realize that the, the essential model for unity is God himself. Now, we know there's one God, but how many persons are there when it comes to God? Well, there's three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God exists in perfect unity, perfect harmony. The Father, the Son, the Spirit have the same mind, the same heart, the same purpose, and Jesus prays that we would be unified with them in that same kind of way. Now, if we're gonna be the church that Jesus wants us to be, if we're gonna be the kind of church that Jesus prayed that we would be, we have to be both serious and intentional about unity. And so let's look at verse one of chapter four where the Apostle Paul says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And notice this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then Paul goes on and he says this, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what word occurs over and over there in those verses? One. Jesus wants us to be one. He wants us to have this incredible unity. And in these brief verses, there's a lot we can learn. And here's the first principle that I want you to see. It's very important. It's on your outline. It says this, God creates unity in the church, and it is our responsibility to make every effort to keep this unity. So through his spirit, God creates unity, and it's our job to keep that unity. Look at verse three again. It says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, in the original language of the Bible, that verb, make every effort, is a really strong word. It means to pursue something with intensity, with passion, to give it all you've got. And that's what we need to do when it comes to the unity of our church family. During the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin, thinking about the mission that uh, the young nation was on, said this, we must all hang together or we will all hang separately. Now you think about the mission that Jesus has called the church to pursue. It's really important that we hang together, that we be unified. And I want you to notice how Paul begins in verse one. He says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then. Now Paul is in Rome, he's actually in prison, and so he's writing from that perspective, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, the word for church in the Bible means the called out ones. God has called us out of darkness into his light. He's called us from a life of hopelessness to a life of hope, and he wants us to live in a way that points people to Jesus, and that's what our unity and our love for each other does. There's a writer, his name is Sheldon Van Auken, and he wrote this one time. He said, the best argument for Christians, for Christianity, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their hope, their love. Guess what he said is the best argument against Christianity? Yeah, Christians. When they are smug and self-righteous and divisive. One time Gandhi said this. He said, I would gladly become a follower of Jesus if I could just find one person who sincerely lived out what Jesus taught. So how can we live out what Jesus taught in a way that draws other people to faith in Christ? Well, first of all, we need to do this. We need to be humble. And that's what Paul says in verse two. Be completely humble and gentle. There was a man who worked in an office and he actually received this award for being the most humble person in the entire office. And then he put that award in his wall and they took it away because they said he was too proud of his award. He was no longer a humble man. Now we know that humility is kind of a slippery slope, but think about this, what is humility? And I think essentially it's just being honest about who you are, honest about your faults and your flaws and your failures. And what is the opposite of humility? Pride, and what letter is in the middle of the word pride? I, it's when you're focused on yourself, what I want, what I need, what I like, and you're not focused on other people. And think about this, in terms of the people that you're attracted to, the people that you like to be connected with, if there's somebody that's being honest about their struggles in life, they're not trying to make themselves better than they are, but they're saying, look, I've got stuff, you know, my family's not perfect, you know, I have, I have a hard time with this or that. Aren't you more drawn to that person than the person who is not honest about their struggles in life? See, it's that kind of humility that brings a church family together in unity. 
Now, in addition to being humble, here's something else that Paul points out. We need to be gentle. We need to be gentle, and that's what he says. Be completely humble and gentle. Now, there's a word in the Bible that often is translated um, for gentle or gentleness. It's the word meek or meekness. And sometimes people think this, that the meek person is a weak person, but nothing could be further from the truth. See, meekness is actually strength under control. Meekness is a word that was used to describe wild stallions that were broken and then trained to obey their master. And in the same way, a meek person is somebody who's being trained by Jesus to care about the needs of other people. So what's the first thing that we need to do to have a church that is unified? Be what? Be humble. And what's the second thing? Be gentle. And here's the third key to unity. Be patient. Be patient. There's a dad who came home at the end of the day, and you can see it here. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And there was a, a dad who came home at the end of the day, and he finds his five-year-old son on the steps leading up to the front door. And his son has his, his head in his hands, and he said, son, you look pretty sad. What's wrong? And he said, dad, I'm having a really tough day. And his dad says, why? And his little boy says, well, to tell you the truth, I'm having a really hard time getting along with your wife. <laughs> Do you ever have a hard time getting along with people? I mean, that's just part of our experience, isn't it? Whether it's in a family or a church family. Let me ask you this. Um, are there people that ever annoy you or irritate you or disappoint you or hurt you? Yeah, well, that's true for all of us. So how should we respond? Well, with patience. It says here, be patient, bearing with one another in love. In love. So let me ask you this. Why is God patient with you? Because he is, you know that, right? He's really patient with you and he's really, really patient with me. Why is that? Because God loves us. We talked and, and sang about it just a few minutes ago. Your love never fails. God loves us and because of his love, he's patient. Now, if you're a parent this morning, um, you know that patience is critical to family unity. Isn't that true? And as a parent, you need to be patient with your children. But why? I mean, what motivates you to be patient with your kids? Well, first of all, because you what? because you love them. But you know, little kids, hopefully as they grow up, they change, right? And they grow and they become more responsible and more mature. And so you're hoping that those things will happen and that helps you be patient. But see, that's true of our relationships in a church family, isn't it? There was a bumper sticker years ago that said, um, please be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. I mean, do we have that perspective when we look at each other? Because sometimes it's easy to do this, to say, hey man, this, this person really has a long way to go. And sometimes we don't realize how far they've already come by God's grace. Because who can change the human heart? We can't, but God can. So just to, um, to recap, the three important keys to unity. The first is to be what? Be humble, be gentle, and be patient. Now we're going to turn a corner here because Paul is going to point out seven specific reasons for unity. And this is really fascinating because in the Jewish culture, the word, or the, the number seven, was a number of completeness or perfection. And let me say this as well. If you're here this morning and you're just checking out what it means to be a follower of Christ, you have questions about Christianity, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope that as we look at these seven reasons for unity, it'll give you a better idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to be connected to other believers in a church family. So... Here's some really good reasons for church unity, and here's the first. We are all one body. And Paul writes this, there's one body and one spirit. 
One body and one spirit. Now, in the Bible, the church is called the body of, body of Christ. And it's a really great analogy because just as the parts of your body need each other, we need each other. And just as the parts of your body can't function disconnected from each other, we really can't accomplish God's purpose for our lives unless we're connected to other people in a church body, in a church family. I mean, you can think about it this way. Um, how many of you have ever um, woken up in the middle of the night hungry? That ever happened? It happened to me last night. Think about this. The parts of your body have to work together if you're going to get something to eat because the stomach wakes up the brain, says, hey, I'm hungry. And the brain goes, oh, man, the stomach is hungry again. And so the brain sends a signal to the feet, hey, feet, get out of bed. And the feet go, I don't want to get out of bed. I'm tired. And the brain says, listen, if you don't get out of bed, the stomach is going to growl all night long and keep the whole body awake. So the feet go, okay, and the feet get out of bed, and they, they take the whole body to the kitchen, and the whole body stands in front of the refrigerator. And then what has to happen to open the refrigerator door? The brain has to say, hey, arms, come on, help me out here. So the arms open the refrigerator door, you open the refrigerator, you reach in, right, and you find that Greek yogurt or whatever you want because you're hungry, and then you have to take it out and take the lid off. Your fingers have to work together. You have to raise a spoon to your, to your mouth, yep, and then you have to swallow, and where does the food end up? In your stomach, and now the stomach is so happy. And now the whole body can go back to bed and get some sleep. But why did that happen? Well, because the body worked together toward a common goal. And that's a beautiful picture of the church. The church is a body of people who are so different working together toward a common goal. And church, the truth is this, we are so much better together. We really are. We talked about it this morning. We worship better how? Together. We reach out to our community better together. We learn better together. We serve better together. And think about this. Who's responsible for the growth of the church? Is it just the pastor or the leaders? Who's responsible for the growth of the church? We all are because we're one body. Or how about this? Who's responsible for the, for the spiritual health of the church? We all are because we're one body. Who's responsible for the financial health of the church? Yeah, all the people that have all the resources, right? No, we all are because we all can make a contribution. We all can give to God's work in the world. Um, there's something in the world of business called the 80-20 principle. Some of you may be familiar with this, that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. That should never be true in the church. Because the church is not just an organization, it's an organism. It is the body of Christ where every person is needed and every person is necessary to carry out God's purpose in the world. So we are one body, and here's another reason for our unity. We are one, we have one spirit. We have one spirit. Now look at verse four again. There is one body and one spirit. Now, we said this at the beginning of the service. There is great diversity in the church. People from different cultures and races and, you know, perspectives. And God brings us all together and brings unity through the work of his Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask some more questions just to show you some of the diversity here in our church family. How many of you are um, under 39 this morning? How many of you are over 39? It's not good to lie in church now. Okay, how many of you grew up as an only child? How many of you have brothers and sisters? Okay, um, how many of you speak only English? How many of you speak another language in addition to English? Um, how many of you were uh, born east of the Mississippi River? West of the Mississippi River? How many of you have no idea where the Mississippi River is? 
See, there's, there's a lot of diversity here in our church family. Now, here's what's really fascinating. Earlier I said there were three things Paul points out that we have to do to have a unified church. What was the first? Be, you can look at your notes. What was it? Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Now, let me ask you this. Can we do that on our own? No, we need God's spirit working in us to give us the desire and the ability to be gentle, to be humble, to be patient with one another. And so we have one spirit that binds us together in unity. Now here's another reason for our unity. We have one hope. We have one hope. And look at verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Now here's a good working definition of hope. Hope is a confident expectation that God will do what he has promised. The confident expectation that God will do what he has promised. Now, when you become a Christian, you inherit the promises of God. See, God doesn't make one promise to Tim and another promise to Jeff. All of us have the same promises because God has promised that he's going to forgive our sins and remember them no more. That's a promise for every believer. God says, one day, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. That's a promise for every believer. God says, I will provide everything you need to accomplish my purpose for your life. That is a promise for every believer. And because we've all inherited all the promises of, of God, we have a common hope. So there's one, one body, there's one spirit, there is one hope, and here's the next thing that binds us together, and this one is so important, one Lord, one Lord. And that's what Paul says in verse five. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now the word Lord can also be translated master, and a master is somebody that you obey. Now Paul is saying here something so critically important that our unity depends on a common commitment to obey the commands of Christ. Let me say that again. Our unity depends on a common commitment to obey the commands of Christ. And let me point this out in a way that I think will really um, connect with us this morning. How many of you are football fans, by the way? Anybody watch any football yesterday? Okay, I watched some football, and I was thinking about this analogy. Um, there was a play where the quarterback dropped back, and he was throwing the ball to the wide receiver, but before the ball got there, the safety, um, that's the defensive player for non-football people, um, hit the wide receiver and knocked him flat. What do you think happened next? What was that? There was, yeah, there's this guy in a striped shirt who blows his whistle and throws this yellow flag on the field. Now, what is his name? He's the referee. He's the umpire. Now, here's what I would call him, the master of the field. Now, why is that? Well, because do the coaches have to obey his commands? Mm-hmm. Do the players have to obey his commands? Well, if they want to stay in the game, they do, Right? So he's the master of the football field because people will listen to what he says and do what he commands. Now, think about the analogy with marriage. All right, for those of you who are married. Uh, and you don't have to raise your hand when I ask these questions. Do you ever have conflict in your marriage? Do you ever have disputes where one person wants to do one thing and the other person wants to do something else? Are there ever decisions where you're not on the same page? And the answer is yes, yes of course. Are you kidding me? Now, wouldn't it be great if there was a marriage referee, right? A master of marriage that could settle all of these disputes and conflicts, and whatever he said, both parties had to agree to it. Wouldn't that be great? Well, did you know what, church family? There is a marriage referee, and you know what his name is? Yeah, that's exactly right. His name is Jesus. And listen, if a, if a marriage is going to make it for the long haul, and I mean not just survive, but if a marriage is going to really thrive, 
It happens when a husband and a wife have one Lord. When there is an agreement to abide by the decision of Jesus, by the words of Jesus, catch this, whether you feel like it or not, because you have a common commitment to obey the commands of Christ. You know, I was thinking about it this week. Um, my wife, Chris, and I have been married um, a long time. In fact, um, God willing, we're going to celebrate um, in December 47 years of marriage. And let me just, I, I appreciate that, but if you're going to applaud, direct it upward. Seriously, and here's why. I was thinking about it this week that um, I'm convinced that my wife, Chris, and I would not be together today without a common commitment to the Lordship of Christ. I really am. And, and church, listen, um, it's a common commitment to Christ that holds a marriage together, and it is a common commitment to Christ that holds a church together. It really is. I, I've been in church leadership for a lot of years, and did you know there's conflict in churches? Now, why is it? Because a church is a family, and, and families have conflict. But here's what's really important, how you handle the conflict. And I will say this, that over the years, I've seen conflict handled really well, um, where people, you know, said, man, this is, this is great. You know, God was in this. We did what he said, and there's been a good outcome. And I've seen conflict handled really poorly. And here's the difference. It's really pretty straightforward. When you have church leaders and church members who have a common commitment to the commands of Christ, then you're going to handle conflict well. And when you have church leaders or church members who are not committed to the commands of Christ, conflict will not be handled well. And I want you to know this. Um, I was talking with somebody just the other day about our church and saying, you know, we're not a perfect church because there are no perfect church families, but we are a healthy church, and that's because we have a foundational commitment to handle conflict God's way. That's our heart. And you know what the result of that is, church? It's unity. A unity that draws other people into God's family. Now, here's another thing um, that we have in common as believers, one faith, one faith. And that's what Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, think about this. If you go back in time to the days of Jesus, um, what did people believe about God, about morality, about spirituality? They believed all kinds of things. I mean, there were so many different belief systems, and along comes this... Um, Jewish rabbi, this radical teacher who makes this audacious statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's, that's pretty exclusive, Jesus, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's not all these different paths to the top of the mountain. No, there's one faith in one person, and that's me. And church, that is the heart of the gospel. And as we take this gospel from generation to generation and person to person, we must never compromise the gospel. Listen, God wants us to connect with our culture, but never in a way that compromises the truth because there is only one way to be made right with God. There's only one way to be rescued. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. There's one faith. And this is the story of the gospel, that we're all in the same, you know, leaky boat, if you will, we're all sinners who need a Savior. We, we've all disobeyed God because of that. We're separated from God because He's holy and we're not. And because God is just, He has to punish every sin, which is, you know, to die and to be separated from Him. That's our just punishment. But because of His great love, what does God do? He sends Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, to this world. 
and Jesus lives a perfect life and then he dies on a cross so we can be forgiven? But how does that forgiveness take place? Well, we have to trust Jesus. We have to believe that he's who he claimed to be, the Son of God who died for our sins. And when we do that, when we cross the line of faith, we're adopted into God's family. But the only way that ever happens is through faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in anything or anyone else. So there is one faith that binds us together. And that leads to the next thing that Paul points out. There's not only one faith, there is one baptism. One baptism. And that's what he says. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One of the um, important things that Jesus commanded his disciples, in fact, is so important, it's often called the Great Commission. When Jesus has um, been risen from the dead, he's getting ready to go home, he calls his disciples together and he says, I'm going to give you your marching orders. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. We need to understand that baptism is incredibly significant. And any time that I have the opportunity to baptize a person who's come to faith in Christ, that is such a meaningful time for me and for that person and for our church family. Now, there's a distinction between baptizing an infant or a child. I'm talking about believer's baptism, where somebody has made that decision to place their faith in Christ. And, and I think about this. When you're baptized, it's not just showing the world that you become a Christian by faith in Christ. It also shows you and others that you've been forgiven. Because that is the symbolism of baptism. When we go to the beach and somebody just goes under the water, it's the idea of being buried and raised to newness of life with Jesus Christ. You're forgiven and now you're part of God's forever family. And that leads us to this last thing that Paul points out, that there is one God. One God, one Father of us all. A few months ago, um, during the summer, I had the privilege of going to Honduras with a team here from our church to do some some work with Children's Impact Network. And I was thinking about the fact that whenever you go to other countries and you encounter other Christians, and this has been my experience in so many different nations, there's an immediate connection. It's like going to your family, because they really are your family. The Holy Spirit lives in every believer, and there is this amazing um, just warmth and love that you feel from people that you've never even met before. Why is that? because the Holy Spirit lives in every single Christian. And what Paul says is true. There is one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of us all. Let me just close with, uh, with this story, and I'll show you how it's related to church unity. It goes like this. A few years ago at the, at the Special Olympics in Seattle, nine runners took their places at the starting line for the 100-meter run. And all of those runners were mentally and physically challenged in some way. At the sound of the gun, all the runners took off, except for one boy who stumbled, fell down, and rolled over a few times. Lying there in the track, he started to cry. And when the other runners heard him cry, they turned around and stopped running. And then they came back, every single one of them, to help this boy who had fallen down. One girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed the boy and said, that'll make it better. Then all nine of them linked arms and walked together to the finish line. And everyone in the stadium stood and cheered for a solid 10 minutes. Just imagine that scene. And here's what I want you to think about. That story is a picture of how unity in the church is supposed to be. Because the reality is this, we're all challenged in some way, aren't we? And we all stumble and fall down. And what God wants us to do is to stop, turn around, and go help each other up 
and to link arms and to move toward his finish line together. And church family, I want you to hear my heart on this because I believe this is the heart of Jesus. Jesus prayed for our unity. Jesus died for our unity. And God creates this incredible unity through the work of his spirit. And he says, hey, I want you to work hard to protect and preserve this unity. How do we do that? By being humble, by being gentle, by being patient with each other. And church, as we do that, our unity will prove to a watching world that our faith is real. And our unity will point people to the only one who can heal their broken lives, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful this morning for your word that reminds us of what is true. And Father, the truth is that you've created this incredible unity in your church family through the work of your spirit. And you want us, God, to work hard to preserve it. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be humble and to be gentle and to be patient with each other, to really love each other, God, the way that you love us. And Lord, this morning, I want to pray especially for people in our church family that are struggling with unity in their family. Lord, you know every situation here. You know that some of us have, have children that have wandered away from you. Lord, there are those that are either contemplating or going through divorce or on the far side of that. Lord, there are people with addictions. There's all kinds of issues in families that, that disrupt the harmony and the unity that you desire. And so, God, we pray for grace. We pray for, for wisdom. We pray for strength, Lord. And God, I pray that you will do this. I pray, God, that you will protect the unity of Boynton Beach Community Church. Lord, bind us together by your spirit. Help us to really love each other and forgive each other and be patient with each other. And God, I pray this too. I, I know that on any given Sunday that someone is here that's never stepped across the line of faith. They've never really trusted Jesus with their life. And, and listen, if that's you this morning and you sense God speaking to you and calling you to, to become a part of his family, then I just want to encourage you to just in your own way, in your own words, just say, God, I need you. God, I, I know that I've, I've failed in so many ways. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And I know his name. It's Jesus. I believe he died for my sins, rose from the dead, and I want to follow him. God, you always, always hear that prayer, answer that prayer, and you run to rescue us. And I pray you'll do that once again this morning. And God, for those of us who have been rescued, would you bind us together so that this world will know that our faith is real. And God, I pray that the unity of Boynt Beach Community Church will make an incredible difference in this community and in the world. And Father, as we sing this last song, we are thankful for Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray in his name. Amen.